0: the Project Zion podcast. This podcast explores the unique spiritual and theological gifts Community of Christ offers for today's world.
1: Welcome to Project Zion podcast. I'm your host, Susan Oxley from Seattle, Washington, USA. This is the series Climate Brewing, where we interview scientists and presenters who've given presentations as part of the Christ North American Climate Justice Zoom series, which we're calling All of Creation from Crisis to Transformation. It's my joy today to be interviewing my good friend, Randy Litzenberger, and he's the co-chairman of the Seattle 34th District Environmental Energy and Land Use Caucus. Um, along with uh, another friend of ours, Annie Phillips. Randy's a high school teacher. Um, he specializes in social and policy issues and is used to teaching those topics all kinds of ages because he's often a guest. And this January, he shared with us um, in one of our webinars, a summary of the outcome of COP26, the climate summit meeting uh, that met in November um, about two months ago in Glasgow. Um, and although the news from that summit and what he shared was not necessarily encouraging, Randy also brought us some very interesting information about some trends that are surprisingly hopeful. So let me introduce Randy. Randy, thank you for being here. And uh, first of all, how's your family, Mari and the two kids, Spencer and Leo, how are they doing?
2: Well thank you Susan for the chance to come back and join here. Uh, the family's doing well. We uh, just had the opportunity actually today to get out and enjoy some of that nature that you and I hold in such high regard. Uh, we went for a, a six-mile hike up by uh, Mount Stye out near Issaquah, Washington. A uh, little drive but we had a chance to meet up with some of my students who are in a Wolverines Who Hike club. The Wolverine is the high school mascot where I teach and so I had a chance to, to join them and. In- great outdoors and savor a little bit of that nature on this uh chilly but clear january day wow that's
1: wonderful six miles yeah not bad huh well for uh theo he's what seven no
2: uh theo's eight and uh he made it uh he made it about five of the miles which was pretty darn good so there was Ah. a decent bit of uphill there so yeah he can be a trooper when he wants to (laughs)
1: wow i'm impressed Okay, Randy, let's start off our conversation about climate. I just want to get you to share with us a brief summary of what COP26 is and uh, its significance and what you think about the results of that meeting.
2: Yeah, happy to. So uh, the Conference of the Partners 26, which was originally scheduled for fall of 2020, delayed like everything else in the world by covid Uh, took place in Glasgow, Scotland here back in November. Uh, It was several days long. And I think that um, there's there's the conference in terms of the dignitaries and delegates from countries across the globe, uh, which amounted to uh, something better than 30,000 people. So this was probably the biggest conference uh, ever in terms of the Conference of the Partners Oh. And um, it was also attended by a number of protesters uh, as well uh, in the several thousands. And in some cases, in terms of the joint efforts that took place, one of the big marches that took place in the middle of it uh, was estimated at north of 100,000 participants that were there temporarily for the day. Uh, really? And partner protests. Yeah, with partner protests across uh, uh, Europe and the like, uh, making a big statement. And in a lot of ways... The the success or failure of a conference of the partners includes what happens in those several days of the event. It also includes what happens leading up to it and then ultimately what happens after it. And so just to kind of consider those before we talk about some of the results, the challenge is can you get countries to raise their ambition coming into the conference in these several months in advance of it? Uh, which eh, was limited in terms of what happened, but there was certainly a lot of talk on both sides of the Atlantic anyway about prospects and promises. Um, and then the events there, as far as breakthroughs and details and language, there was discussion of uh, reaching a reduction in methane by the year 2030. A 30% reduction was much uh, purported. Uh, there were also points of frustration in terms of coal where the language that should have been phase out was changed to phase down in terms of global coal use at the insistence oh. of two big coal users in China and India. So there's definitely room to grow there. Um, and then ultimately, uh, the promises in terms of nationally determined contributions, the NBCs, which usually get a lot of the headlines, the ambitions that are there talk about ultimately most of the countries in the world that came in with nationally determined contributions that we're aiming for. Uh, net zero economies by the middle of the 21st century, by 2050. China and India are still holding fast at 2060 for China and 2070 for India, respectively. And so those are ambitions that simply aren't good enough for us to get to the magic numbers that we're looking for. Uh, The magic numbers, of course, are two degrees at the worst, but preferably keeping 1.5 degrees Celsius uh, increase in global temperatures since 1750s post-industrial increase. Uh, has been the goal all along, and ultimately, we are not there yet. What I think is important to note is the progression over time, because just as recently as six years ago, we were facing, before the Paris conference in 2015, we were facing a scenario that talked about 4.6 degrees Celsius increase by 2100 with the way that things were progressing based on the numbers we had at the time. But the Paris conference uh, increases in areas that I'll share in a moment with some of your other questions in the private sector, Uh, subnational governments, as well as some national governments, we've really moved the needle on that. We've gone from 4.6 in a very likely scenario all the way down to probably 2.7 now by 2100, uh, with a very slim and outside chance based on the current numbers of getting down to 1.8 or 1.9, but that seems a little um, little optimistic. That's if all the pledges, all the targets by 2050 are met uh, perfectly by all the countries. So more realistically, I think instead of four point six degrees Celsius, where we were six degrees now or six years ago, now uh, we are on path right now to about two point seven degrees Celsius with where things currently stand.
1: Okay, and what would four point seven mean
2: for the world? Well, anything above two degrees Celsius, to be honest, is a, a an increasing chance of runaway scenarios. So, if you're at two degrees, uh, once you break that threshold, you're talking about Um, one chance in three, a 33% chance that the Earth's tipping points will have been reached or exceeded, and you enter runaway disaster climate scenarios, methane forcing in the Arctic, for example, um, rapid ice sheet loss uh, problems, increasing problems in terms of drought, wildfires, well beyond anything that we have seen yet, uh, where we can no longer uh, control those systems. We cannot stop them. They run off on their own. Uh, and you get into some pretty dire scenarios for humanity and really most of the species on the planet. 4.6 degrees would be uh, the worst catastrophe you can imagine for planet Earth Sort of being hit by a massive comet. Uh, It it would take decades to play out, but certainly by 2100, you'd be looking at massive depopulation of the world in terms of most species. You'd be uh, the sixth extinction event, the sixth mass extinction event. and geologic history would be all but assured and would be well underway by 2100. Uh, Humanity could not survive in those circumstances. You would have billions of people uh, that simply couldn't cool themselves uh, even uh, at night uh, for most of the year. I mean, it's pretty catastrophic. Rising sea levels, it would displace most of humanity since most of uh, the human population lives at or near sea level. 4.6 degrees is pretty awful. but when we, even when we get down to two degrees, uh, Vanessa Nakate, uh, the famous Nigerian activist, spoke uh, eloquently about this during the Conference of the Partners in Glasgow. And she talked about two degrees is a death sentence for a billion people because they face what's known as wet bulb temperatures of 35 degrees Celsius for long stretches of the year. That's a temperature where the human body cannot cool itself even when it's sweating because the air temperature exceeds the temperature of the human body consistently, even at night. Right. So these are... These are truly nightmare scenarios that start at two degrees Celsius. uh, And ultimately that's why 1.5 degrees is seen as not an easy (laughs) reality, uh, but the easiest that's possible. And one that keeps a variety of countries, uh, the Marshall Islands uh, and low lying nations, uh, keeps them from being inundated uh, by rising sea levels. If we can uh, manage not to break that 1.5 degrees Celsius barrier, it keeps them alive. It keeps them viable. And it's one that uh, we desperately need to aim for.
1: Uh, Randy, I I just feel horrified by what you by the scenario you shared, and I can feel my heart beating faster and my you know stress level rising. Um, so the urgency of making changes is very clear. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, there's a quote that I just heard this last weekend that says we're not approaching a cliff, we've already jumped off of it, mm-hmm. and most people don't recognize it yet. Do you think that there's any way of getting back to the cliff, or are we, uh, are we past the point where we can do anything?
2: I think we're very much short of the cliff. Uh, the, the trend is clear. We're driving towards the cliff, if you want to continue the metaphor, at an increasing rate of speed. Uh, the question now is, can we hit the brakes hard enough to prevent going over? Because once you get to the cliff event, as, as I would consider the metaphor, you're, you're entering those runaway scenarios where the planet simply uh, it cannot be stopped in terms of what's doing. It enters positive feedback loops where uh, more Arctic melting releases more methane from permafrost thawing, which increases methane in the atmosphere, added to the greenhouse gas emissions from CO2, Uh, And it just reinforces itself dramatically beyond what we have the technology to stop. So I I would disagree uh, that we have jumped off the cliff here at this time, but we can see it. It's not 30 years out. Uh, It's probably eight or nine years out. If we don't reach 50 percent global reduction in greenhouse gas emissions by 2050, or I'm sorry, by 2030, 50 percent by 2030, then that's the moment where I feel like we were heading over the cliff. Um, So, and maybe that's a little more optimistic uh, than what some may say, but, you know, I think we have to follow the science. Uh, Michael Mann, one of the uh, best climatologists that we have, he, uh, uh, along with others back in the 1980s and 90s, were the eminent scientists in this, and they've continued to talk about the fact that there's some alarmist scenarios that we get from some features that they're talking about, you know, we're doomed now. I don't think that's accurate. Uh, it certainly isn't inspirational, right? So, uh, so we're in a position now where we have the ability to control it. Yeah, mm-hmm.
1: right. Oh no, I didn't mean to interrupt. Um, so what what do you think COP accomplished? Did that meeting, mm-hmm. that summit of the international mm-hmm. leaders, do they understand this? Do they realize the urgency? What do you think?
2: Yeah, I think it's a great question to kind of just to pose that with, because I do think the Conference of the Partners accomplished the continued progress we need to have in terms of the aspirational pieces. Um, did it accomplish everything we needed? Did it guarantee we're going to be at 1.5 degrees Celsius? No, that's also not true. But did it put us in a position where 1.5 is still viable and possible for us, that that would be the highest we would go by 2100? Yes, but the path is getting narrow, and it is a winding one for us to accomplish that. Um, And I think as far as, it's a metaphor I'll refer to later on, but as far as the role that national governments play, and to some degree, the international community is a collection of that. um, Ultimately, as I'll share here in a moment, when we talk a little bit more about markets, and to some degree, the private sector and uh, civic organizations and sub-national governments, that national governments definitely play a role, but they're less and less in the driver's seat. Uh, More and more, they're the ones that could hit the brakes as a metaphorical caboose, I suppose, to the train in terms of what we're doing right now. Um, But I do think that the the conference of the partners was dramatically important. Uh, It speaks to our our hopes and aspirations. They set the ambitions, they set the targets, but what gets us to those targets is to some degree in national action, it's always nice to have that, but there are other elements here that are pushing us forward towards those targets beyond what national governments governments themselves do. It's certainly the fastest route to be able to get to where we need to go would have national governments setting targets, pushing forward their budgets, uh, acting to cut off fossil fuel projects. We're only seeing that in a limited way right now. And ultimately, the leadership by national governments has been selective. Some countries like Germany, some countries like Denmark, have really paved the way forward for uh, renewable energy in the last really 20 plus years, let alone the last five or six. And they're starting to reap the benefits of that. Uh, but we need, we need more work. We simply need more aspiration on the parts of national governments to really get us uh, to 2030 where we need to go. But I think still, uh, the conference did open the door for that. One of the best things that we can consider from the conference, because there's so much we can talk about with the national governments, but is the role of the protesters themselves. Uh, which I was really uh, flattered to be uh, partnered with uh, Michael and and Andrew, I believe in terms of uh, uh, their work in the presentation that we had in the Q&A just this last weekend. To see them and to understand the commitment that's there by people on the ground to go and to be the visible public push uh, for those countries to be more aspirational, for them to go harder with it, it matters. It really does matter that you had 100,000 people marching through Glasgow during the course of that conference of partners. Uh, that's part of the process. Without it, we know that we'll never come anywhere near what national governments need to do. With it, there's a chance, though it's an outside one, of, that those governments will continue to push, continue to have better targets, continue to push us more towards 1.5 degrees as opposed to not.
1: Right, uh, let's, let's pursue that topic of protests for just a moment. Um, I know that Michael and Andrew, uh, who attended as protesters. Uh, peaceful protesters uh, and said that you know it went very smoothly, very peacefully. But they met some of the uh, delegates from some developing nations who basically said to them, we don't have a voice here. We're delegates, but we're not giving, being given a chance to speak. And um, I found that very sad to hear that. And so did uh, Andrew and Michael. They made a point of telling us that. Um, why is it that some of the delegates don't have the right to speak?
2: Yeah. Or if they do have the right to speak, they're not being allowed to speak in the main circles to the main players. I think either oh, I of those see. scenarios is possible. I um, see. And so, yeah, and it, it, it's the question of, I mean, you certainly have delegates from uh, a variety of the developing countries, particularly, I mentioned the Marshall Islands, that's famous from a couple of cops ago. Uh, and, and even here, when we're hearing those, those voices from countries that are not facing problems a decade or two decades from now, they are right now being devastated by rising sea level. Even if it isn't inundating uh, islands in the Pacific or elsewhere, uh, they're facing saltwater penetration in terms of their limited fresh water supplies. Now, those things are happening presently. And so it's very difficult to see how the next 10 years for them is anything short of catastrophic. So why are their voices not being heard? I think probably the short answer is that if their voices were being heard, we'd see the developing world take the actions uh, to be able to address not only the the problems in terms of greenhouse gas emissions, but also you'd see uh, that they would be receiving damages from the developing world. Uh, And this is a topic that came up, which is I think a little uh, source of hope for us here, that the topic of damages, meaning that money would come as punishment, a penalty for the developing world to uh, to the, or I'm sorry, from the developed world to the developing world that would amount to basically some kind of reparation and would pay for that. That has never been on the table of the Conference of the Partners. That has never been taken seriously up until this year. And what was promised was that would open talks for what will happen in 2023 here, or uh, sorry, fall 2022 in terms of discussions. We'll have another Conference of the Partners this coming fall. And that's going to be one that I think will see some possibilities opening the door to damages. So in a limited way, that is some recognition of the voices and the challenging they're facing. they're facing. Less so for mitigation, more so for adaptation in terms of where those funds could go. I think also that the challenge for those voices from protesters and from countries that are facing the very front lines of this is simply that uh, they get ignored by the media. They get ignored by um, other countries because ultimately, It's a question of power. How influential are you? Do you have uh, the ability to force the rest of the world to see what's happening here? Do you have the ability to grab their collective attention? And it it stinks for so many reasons that our world works that way, but we very much are in these high stakes international conferences still built around the understanding that if you don't have power, if you don't have a uh, multi-trillion dollar economy, if you don't have um, political leadership that is connected to a, a military that can get your attention uh, and an economy that requires respect in terms of a global trading partner, then you do often get ignored. That's the, the harsh, ugly truth of the world that we live in. But it shouldn't surprise us too much. We've lived in that kind of world for a long time. Uh, in the era of colonization, 50 and 100 years ago, uh, those areas didn't get listened to at all by the mainstream uh, powers and the like. Now we're just barely starting to see any kind of recognition. So it's up to us to continue to keep the pressure on and to join our fellow activists as much as we can in, in many different ways to respect those questions. Environmental justice here is very much a part of the equation, not just in the United States in terms of frontline communities or in our respective countries with our populations that have borne the brunt of most of this, but also for communities and countries around the world in sub-Saharan Africa, uh, in low-lying islands, in South Asia, in Southeast Asia, These are the areas that have traditionally been ignored and now that that, the ignorance of their circumstances is leading to a desperate plight.
1: Sure. I understand that the UN has set up a green fund that um, Mm -hmm. is designed for wealthy nations like the USA to contribute uh, millions of dollars to that green fund in order to help developing nations make the transition from fossil fuels To green fuels Um, how is that going have has the united states given anything to that is are those funds being used what's happening Mm
2: -hmm. yeah uh you're talking about the green climate fund which um several years ago was conceived uh, back in 2010 actually as this the main avenue for the developed world to provide funds for the developing world uh knowing that ultimately uh the aspirations for better standard of living for uh, developing nations and the like was going to be carbon based. If you want to have power in your home for most of the last hundred plus years, it was going to be generated by some kind of fossil fuel at a plant or whatnot elsewhere. So the goal was to provide funds uh, in a voluntary capacity starting in 2010, 2011 uh, and to aspirationally hit hundred billion dollars a year in funding by 2020. Uh, That was the goal. We did not reach that goal. We did not reach that goal by November of 2021 either. Uh, But you have seen uh, numbers that are starting to pick up. We're looking at tens of billions of dollars that the global community has placed into the Green Climate Fund uh, over time. It's nowhere near $100 billion a year yet, but you're starting to see some promise. The uh, United States specifically uh, was one of the earlier and larger contributors to that. Under the Obama administration, they committed uh, $4 billion to it. Uh, Ultimately, only about $2 billion of that was delivered to the Green Climate Fund because, well, the remaining $2 billion got held up by the Trump administration. Uh, And now, just in the last year, we're starting to see more commitments coming from it. So I think in terms of the international community, uh, there's much more that needs to be done. And it needs to be, there's much debate about the Green Climate Fund, well, what are the strings attached to these funds? Are these loans or are they grants? Or do they have some other capacity to them? And if you look at the Green Climate Fund in terms of some of the breakdown, I'm happy to share one of the resources I have for, for your listeners, maybe we can do that separately here, um, that allows you to see some of the graphic breakdowns and the like for it. it you're looking at a relatively modest percent that comes in grants uh, historically. Uh, a lot of it is tied up in loans that may well be low interest, but the reality is you're telling, okay, developing world, uh, here come these funds, here come tens of billions of dollars, but you need to pay this back with some interest. I mean, that's just not a realistic scenario for success. Uh, we need to have that be in grants. We need to have that be contribution because ultimately they're facing the choice. India right now, for example, has enough coal reserves inside their borders to more than allow for their citizenry, uh, 1.4 billion people, uh, to have a world-class standard of living in terms of electrification. But we know if they burn that coal, that's that's game over for the planet. We're in runaway scenarios, uh, certainly before the middle of the century. So we need to incentivize uh, those communities that are looking at coal, that are looking at fossil fuels, saying, well, we have access to this, but we don't have the ability quite yet to be able to choose the green option because of the green premium that exists. Bill Gates' book, How to Avoid a Climate Catastrophe, talks a lot about the green premium that has existed for certainly in the last 20 years. Uh, I think we're getting close to that opportunity where it's it's not only a better choice ethically, I mean, obviously it is, but in terms of the straight hard knuckles finance that the green options about solar, the green options about wind uh, and other possibilities are becoming quite competitive with fossil fuels, even the cheap ones like coal uh, and what's become relatively cheap in terms of natural gas.
1: So you mentioned Bill Gates and I've heard you say before that um, you were not very uh, enthusiastic or encouraged about help from the private sector, uh, but in recent times, you've changed your mind. So what changed your mind? is? Does Bill Gates have anything to do with that?
2: i to give Bill Gates a little bit of credit. I mean, reading his book also is always an eye-opener. He's been in the news uh, for other reasons as well. I'm not a fan of billionaires by any stretch. Um, but ultimately uh, we're facing something that I think should be a wake-up call for everyone uh, right now which in terms of the magnitude of the possible disaster here, the rather dire scenarios we get to if we don't proceed aggressively in this decade globally then there's no reason why we should be saying okay well we're going to solve this but we don't want uh, we don't want to pay attention to markets we don't want to pay attention to those who can, uh, move funds around and help with this, because it's really an all-hands-on-deck situation, very much so. We don't have the luxury of saying, well, you're not pure enough in terms of uh, our perspective for climate and for social justice. Your hands are filthy with money, and they very much are for a lot of these folks we're talking about. We need everything. We need to throw everything we have at it. So what's shaped my opinion, I think, recently has, one, been that understanding about the desperation of the circumstances, and two, honestly, a greater appreciation for. For the leverage that you can get from markets that we can't, at least so far, cannot get from national governments. I mean, I would love it, Susan, if we could just say, all right, Federal Reserve and most of the central banks in the world, print money, solve it now that way, because currency isn't based on gold or silver, it's based on confidence. And if we simply buy our way to a climate solution, uh, that could be pretty efficient in a lot of scenarios, although we're seeing some realities now for inflation. Uh, that may sap up whatever political will is there to do that. The reality though is we don't we don't necessarily need to yeah we don't necessarily need to do that. There are other ways available that allow us to harness uh, something that by itself is you know a pretty phenomenal invention if it's regulated and controlled. Capitalism has this habit of making phenomenal phenomenal amounts of wealth and resources. The problem is left to its own devices which it certainly was in the 19th century at its inception and in the last 40 years, through deregulation has largely been, it tends to flow one direction, it tends to flow up. And you get people starved for resources at the bottom. Uh, You get uh, corruption in terms of political systems that perpetuate such inequalities. It tends to be a disaster if you don't regulate it carefully. When you do regulate it, when you do provide structure to markets, and I completely disagree with those on the right who would say, Uh, that markets are crystalline, perfect entities, don't touch them, let them operate from themselves because they're perfection in nature. Nonsense. (laughs) Hogwash. Nothing can be further from the truth. (laughs) Markets are created by people. And as Robert Reich, one of my favorite economists, says, we have the ability to structure markets so they can do more or less anything we want. And so why can't we create market structures that incentivize renewable energy and remove incentives for fossil fuels. We absolutely can do that. And the proof is what I learned in terms of my preparations for this most re- recent presentation with your group, that when you talk about uh, the rate of change that can come from markets on a whole host of things, I shared examples about you know, the, the automobile in 1900 versus 1913, just in New York City, how you couldn't find more than one automobile on Fifth Avenue on Easter. Sunday in 1900, that graphic that I showed from Tony Seba. And then 13 years later, uh, the horses were all gone and the only thing left were automobiles and they were everywhere. Uh, the reality is that markets and the private sector, yes, uh, can produce rapid uh, accelerating change that can be profound in terms of making new technologies readily available to so many people. And they can also have their downside. They can also do that in such a manner that you displace Uh, traditional institutions that you displace workers in old uh, institutions that suddenly have no work anymore. They have to retrain, they have to uh, move on on their own unless they get a lot of help. So can we create markets that have the ability to go past the political logjam, to get past the influence of fossil fuel money in our political systems, which is everywhere now? And the answer is yes. And we're seeing it happen before our very eyes. In my first presentation, I shared the fact that we have, uh, through... uh, Project Sunshot from the federal government, but also from a lot of of solar panels being built in China. In the last 10 years, we've dropped uh, the price of uh, photovoltaic solar power uh, installed dramatically using the levelized cost of electricity. We've dropped it better than 90% in some cases. That's the result of markets doing what they do. They introduce new technologies, and once they get past this gestation stage, they get on these nonlinear S-shaped growth curves. Uh, And once they're there, they tend to stay on there. Um, Part of the heart of my presentation, I think, that that may be really enthusiastic about sharing these pieces about markets is that we're looking at, for our purposes, four game-changing technologies that in the last 10 years have gotten on those S-shaped growth curves. They are in varying places on it, depending on what we're talking about. The most aggressive and promising are wind and solar. Uh, We're looking at costs that we have reach now in terms of down below $100 uh, per kilowatt hour installed, uh, or I'm sorry, per megawatt hour installed, uh, that we weren't supposed to get to until 2050. We're 20 and 30 years ahead, ultimately, of where we thought we would be as, as recent as five or six years ago. The projections from the International Energy Agency said that, okay, yeah, you'll get below $100 per megawatt hour installed for solar, but that's going to be 2050. Nonsense. We got there by 2020. We've done it. Okay. When we look at the, the fact that solar and wind are on these non-linear growth curves, uh, which we, we have clear evidence that that's been the case here. Uh, we've reduced their cost dramatically over the last 10 years through a mix of incentives, through the market in terms of what it's been doing in terms of efficiencies. We're looking at this reality they're going to outcompete fossil fuels. In some cases, they're doing it right now in different parts of the world. But by the time we get to the middle of this decade, by 2025, we're going to be looking at this as a, a widespread source of energy and the preferred one in terms of electricity generation. Uh, the question now is not, will we continue to move forward in a way that really sees dramatic acceleration of this? Uh, the question is rather, can we through policy, which is one of the central tenets I think i brought up in both presentations, can we through good policy uh, at a variety of levels, uh, accelerate the growth on that so that we can get to 2030? and have 50% reduction in terms of our greenhouse gas emissions, much of which comes from the energy sector. And I think ultimately, we, we should think about the metaphor that I used a little bit in the second presentation about pushing this great weight up a hill, a giant rock, if you will. The last 20 years, we have been lifting that through helps of policy and those things up to the top of a mountain. And the reality is it's arrived now. All of that inertia Uh, that will create an avalanche of renewable energy penetrating deep into global markets is there, it's poised, it's ready to go. What we have to do now is clear the obstacles, and those include things like fossil fuel subsidies, for example, globally. We need to remove those. We need to redirect those. And we're starting to see that happen in a limited sense. Um, For example, one of the promises that came out of uh, the Conference of the Partners, looping back to that for a quick second, was that we would have a... um, reduction in national government support for fossil fuel projects overseas outside of their own country. And it's limited right now. Uh, currently, uh, the major, I think, top five countries that include the United States uh, have basically put in something like $63 billion in support from national governments for fossil fuel projects over the last several years overseas outside of their own borders. Well, this isn't a complete shift of that, but if the pledge that is held up that came from Conference of the Partners this time in Glasgow is held up, we're looking at a $15 billion reduction in that in terms of the projects that are kind of in the pipeline that have yet to go forward with it. That's not nothing, but you're starting to starve the beast, so to speak. You're starting to remove those obstacles so that that avalanche of renewables that's going to come crashing down the hill, in a lot of ways it already is, uh, but will accelerate through this decade, it'll make it so that it has fewer obstacles on the way. Uh, So that transition, the renewable energy, the clean energy transition that is coming, that is happening right now, honestly, uh, we can only push it faster if we have good policy. Uh, And that policy will bring incentives to markets. It will clear away hurdles to allow for the creation of uh, more wind farms, offshore wind farms in the United States and Europe uh, that will allow for access for the cables and the transmission lines that we need to be able to make that link in the grid, to green the grid and ultimately to help us electrify everything because we'll have the power for it. There was one study I saw just in the last week that talked about ultimately, if we electrify everything globally, right. we will only right. use about 40% as much power as what we currently use because of the efficiencies of electricity over natural gas and uh, fossil fuels. So we're talking Impressive. about yeah, we're talking about not only a, a, an ethical solution in terms of this horrible morass of climate change that we're finding ourselves in, but one that is simply more efficient. We're playing to physics as opposed to against it. Uh, and that brings the opportunity for, I think, dramatic change. And that's renewables that are pushing us forward in that regard.
1: Great. So that's that's both electricity and wind power. What are the other two? solar
2: right. PV, yeah.
1: Remind me of the other two that you talked about at the web. Yeah,
2: absolutely. The other two in the webinar that we talked about um, included batteries and then electrolyzers. Think green hydrogen, not blue hydrogen, because then you're just using uh, fossil fuel inputs to make hydrogen, uh, but green hydrogen where it's generated from uh, renewables. First for batteries. With batteries, it's a similar story to solar and to wind, although it's a little earlier in the growth curve for it. That when it comes to batteries, we have made phenomenal jumps ahead in terms of uh, lithium battery packs in terms of their cost. Uh, and their storage has dropped in terms of cost of storing a kilowatt of electricity. I mean, 10 years ago, we were talking about something that would be well over $1,000 for a kilowatt hour storage. If you think of the first Teslas, right, the Model S, I mean, you're right. trying to get a car that would get you 200 plus miles range, but it would cost you $75,000, $80,000. That was the state of the art in terms of that. But because, and I don't want to give Elon Musk too much credit because he's anti-union and I'm very pro-union, but when we talk about different innovators and in markets, and honestly, both the United States and China in terms of the money they put into batteries and lithium-ion, what we've done is we've made lithium-ion batteries more efficient, and we have made them cheaper in the past decade, decade and a half. And the reality of that is that now we're looking at costs that are not quite at $100 per kilowatt hour of storage, but are very close to that. And again, it's well ahead of schedule. Uh, the International Energy Agency said we wouldn't get to that cost really of $100 per kilowatt hour until the middle of the century until 2050. And now we're there. or we're right on the cusp of it anyway. So with batteries, we're looking at phenomenal opportunities. And you know there, there's discussion, I always hear from folks about, well, isn't lithium bad for the environment? Uh, aren't we using things like cobalt and other rare earths to make them? The answer is yes, on both counts, they absolutely can be but we have to consider um, ultimately how we're going to improve our ability to harvest those Uh, mining lithium from traditional mining methods, dig a big hole in the ground, dig it out. Uh, There's a Thacker pass in Nevada. There's a site for lithium now that could have a massive amount of our lithium supply going forward, but would be absolutely destructive in terms of tearing up the earth. When you think about the open um, uh, what open water uh, spaces and the like for dissolving lithium basically using the power of the sun in Chile, where it's most famous for that. uh, You're talking about a slower process that still has a lot of environmental problems in terms of using water in deserts for something like uh, refining lithium. So neither of those, one is certainly better than the other, but neither of those need to be our solution long term. They currently are, they're where the state of the art is, but we're starting to see prospects in terms of lithium and harvesting that. uh, The Salton Sea, for example, in Southern California, there are prospects there that talk about uh, closed loop systems that don't use uh, groundwater from the surrounding area, that don't dig big pit mines, that are non-invasive, and allow us to cycle basically lithium out of the brine that is naturally occurring there. That could be a phenomenal load in terms of the lithium we need to continue to transition for the clean energy economy. So we shouldn't think of lithium as there's only one way to do it or two ways to do it right now. Nor and we don't think of it in terms of hey the only uh, internal combustion engine we have right now is the Model T or the carbureted engine. Those are dinosaur technologies. Right. We advance the technology through innovation, through market incentives, through better structured markets and policy. Uh, and those are policies that brought us cleaner air, uh, more efficient automobiles, and they'll do the same thing in terms of batteries. They'll bring us cleaner processes as long as we hold them to count. And ultimately, uh, as long as we continue this, this clean energy transition. Just a quick word on electrolyzers with green hydrogen, because it's the one that is, very much in the gestation stage. Uh, right now, uh, it is the one that is, of the four technologies that I mentioned with solar PV uh, and then wind and then batteries, green electrolyzers, green hydrogen has the furthest to go. It's, it's very much at the front end of things. It's not even really at a thousand dollars per kilowatt hour in terms of storage. But the promise of this is immense because you're never going to be able to stuff enough batteries into an airplane to make it fly other than a little gimmick thing that can only carry a a few hundred pounds of cargo uh, or a couple passengers. Ultimately, we need something to convert the hardest decarbonized sectors in terms of aviation for sure, uh, but also things like uh, steel uh, refining and the like that are really carbon intensive industries And we're going to have to depend on something like hydrogen to come along for that. If we end up doing blue hydrogen, if we just use natural gas inputs for it, that's a tragedy and we're going to go nowhere in terms of reducing our emissions. But we're hearing about promising things in Australia, for example, which has tremendous resources in terms of uh, solar and wind. Uh, Andrew Forrest, uh, his uh, uh, Fortescue Metals Group, which is one of the largest metal uh, refineries and iron ore harvesters on the planet, they have dedicated themselves in the last couple of years to do something pretty radical, which is they're not only going to decarbonize, they're very hard to decarbonize systems in terms of creating uh, metals for the planet and steel or, or iron-oriented steel, but they're going to make themselves a green energy company by putting a lot of solar and a lot of uh, wind out there in those areas, and they're going to start making green hydrogen, and they're going to export that. Now, it is, it is far-fetched, but uh, you should read about Andrew Forrest and Fortescue and his story. He's a guy who came in with minimal resources and set up ultimately this company with a few lucky investors uh, 15, 20 years ago, and they have kind of taken the world by storm in a lot of ways. So I wouldn't bet against somebody who has ambition and resources that has an established company right now, because they can see where the future is. The future is not these energy and carbon intensive hogging industries staying as they are. The future is them transitioning, and whoever does it first has a dramatic edge in terms of the future. And they have this opportunity to help rewrite the rule book on their terms, as opposed to being forced into a green energy future uh, when they wait and get behind the curve. So there's tremendous cost savings, there's tremendous market share available for folks that are looking towards that. And it's a moment to be bold, because that's what we're going to see, along with good policy from national governments that will support those private sector pieces, we have to have those good pieces of policy to make it possible for them as they take big risks. Otherwise, it simply won't happen. You'll have a few outliers, and maybe they'll get the breakthroughs we need. But we need this as a broad-based spectrum, because as I said earlier, this is an all-hands-on-deck moment. We don't have the luxury of what my political predilections are, which is very suspicious of billionaires uh, and ultimately private companies and their motives. We need to force them to work for us. And the clean energy transition is perhaps the biggest opportunity to do that right now.
1: So um, you are reiterating what you said in the webinar and that is the marketplace is actually driving the change faster than the politics. Or or I should say the politicians.
2: I would say the national governments because politicians come at all sorts of levels.
1: Okay. Um, so if the marketplace is, is driving the change faster, what does that mean? Uh, can you, can you talk about that in relationship to some of the other solutions that have been proposed, like reforesting everything, uh, planting enough trees to, to, you know, pick up the carbon dioxide in the air about animal mm-hmm. agriculture and moving to, um, Uh, a plant-based diet, which is also uh, proposed as a primary solution. Where, Where do all these different solutions fit together?
2: Yeah, I think they fit together importantly in some of the areas that are also can be challenging to decarbonize. I mean, one of the areas when it comes to greenhouse gases, CO2 tends to get all the attention because it's 98 or 99% of the greenhouse gas emissions that we have as far as the the tonnage, right? Uh, Right. The the gigatonnage. Um, But the reality is we know that carbon dioxide, as far as a molecule of that, is not equal to a, a molecule of methane. Methane is 27 to 90 plus times as damaging a greenhouse gas just because it retains that so much more effectively than carbon dioxide does in terms of its impact as a greenhouse gas. But we also know that it's more temporary. So how that fits in with agriculture. Let me speak to this first, and then I'll bring in a couple of a couple of things that are promising with it. There's a good TED talk I listened to just this weekend that spoke to this. The big opportunity right now, the easiest low hanging fruit for reducing greenhouse gases is in methane. We have the technology and honestly, we have the political will coming out of Glasgow uh, to cut our methane emissions in half by 2030. And how we do that uh, includes agriculture in terms of changing where those pieces are. Uh, And it also includes things like uh, the the current fossil fuel economy where it's kind of a plumbing problem. That might be one of the easiest, cheapest things to solve because I mean, I'm no fan of natural gas companies (laughs) but one thing we can all agree on is that if they have leaky pipes, and if they have prospects in terms of transporting methane from where it's produced to the market or natural gas to the market, that doesn't do anybody any good. They lose uh, their commodity just out to the open atmosphere. And ultimately, we're, we're taking massive step backwards in terms of our prospects of reaching 1.5 degrees. So the first solution in terms of when it comes to dealing with methane and reducing it by 50% by 2030, you have to replumb the system to make sure it doesn't leak and to give incentives through market structure to businesses to say, well, we don't wanna be sloppy with this, we wanna make sure that we're getting every last drop ultimately to market. And then in terms of agriculture, I mean, it's multifaceted, uh, but with agriculture right now, we have, oh boy, more than a billion cows on planet earth. And the reality is that they exist, Uh, they get good prices in terms of their meat, Uh, they're very popular in it, and it's a protein that is preferred, even though it's not a very efficient one. Um, but to deal with those, you can either start to phase out the use of them. That is, uh, as what did the members of uh, uh, one of the political parties in D.C. say about uh, uh, the Green New Deal, that they're going to ban our hamburgers. Well, we could try to do that, but that's probably going to be politically problematic. Um, or you can simply make that beef less um, methane intense. And the way you do that, one of the simplest ways is changing feedstocks. Uh, which means there are ways to modify the diet of uh, the bovine species uh, by providing things that would naturally reduce the methane in their burps. I mean, a lot of the argument is that the methane comes out the other end, but mostly it's from their mouth as their, their multiple stomach system is burping that out through the mouth. So if you reduce the, um, some of the prospects of that, just from additions to their feedstocks, I've heard of uh, mint, as one of the interesting ones that it makes sense. It's an antacid, right? Uh, That's something that can have some prospects to reduce methane by at least somewhat in terms of feedstocks. So there's some prospects there. I think we'd all be way better off if we ate a lot less meat. uh, And if we pushed ourselves in a direction where we don't need a billion cows uh, to be the feedstock for the planet. So I do think a plant-based diet for now is very promising. Uh, It has its own problems right now in terms of commercial agriculture. Uh, because you're talking about fossil fuel feedstocks that come from fertilizers that not only are greenhouse gas intensive, I mean, nitrogen fertilizers and the like are their own greenhouse gas problem in the making of them. But they also run off into our waterways uh, and do great damage uh, in in that sense, too. Uh, think about the dead zone at the mouth of the Mississippi River, the Gulf of Mexico. That's because yes. you're draining how many thousand tons of fertilizer every single day down the Mississippi from all the farm fields in Iowa and the Midwest and the like. So that's problematic. One of the interesting things is kind of a fifth technology, if I could cheat a little bit and add that on, uh, which is very early on in its prospects, but is going to, I think, see a lot of dynamic growth in the next 10 years, is lab meat, uh, where you're talking about meat uh, proteins that are meat that are grown in labs and not out in pastures. And that prospect, as the costs on that continue to come down, as it's as nutritious and as attractive as meat, because, I mean, let's be honest, Susan, and I'll be honest, I'll speak only for myself. I can't speak for you in that, but (laughs) I have never gone and, you know, owned a cow, killed a cow, had it slaughtered, and then had the the meat brought to my table. I have never done the complete cycle on that.
1: No, I haven't either.
2: And I think that's probably true for 90 plus percent of Americans. So let's be clear. We don't care (laughs) beyond the point where we pick it up in the supermarket in its little cellophane wrapper, which is its own conversation. We don't care how it gets to that point. What we care about is that it tastes like it and that it meets our needs in that course. And lab meat is going to do that. And ultimately you're gonna see something that over the next 10 to 15 years is going to be appearing and ultimately it's going to be cheaper and it's going to outcompete the current very inefficient model of getting meat from the pasture to our tables. Uh, and its carbon footprint will be negligible. Really it'll just be the, the transporting it from point A to point B from lab to market and the like. And once that's electrified, it'll effectively have zero uh, carbon footprint compared to where we are right now. The last one that you brought up was um, defore- or reforestation. And I think that there's a lot of promise here but it also kind of depends on how you're doing it and where. I mean, right now think about um, the, uh, the forest service presently in the United States. It, for them to have uh, national forests that are served by, let's say Weyerhaeuser, which is a big timber company. Uh, currently their model is in Washington state where I live that you plant a forest uh, after you've harvested the, the last one that stood there, you plant that forest, usually it's very monocrop. So it's all Douglas fir, for example. We need to do better than that but that after 35 or so years, it's ready to be harvested. The trees are mature, uh, size of the trunks fits the mills perfectly. So they come back and they cut it all down and away you go. Well, the problem is the first 20 years of basically a forest growth uh, is generally, it's a source. It's a net emitter of carbon dioxide based on the science that we're seeing now. And if you look at it, if you go take a look at a replanted forest with all those little shrubby kind of Christmas trees kind of things for the first 10 years to 15 years around here, maybe as long as 20 in other parts of the country, they just don't hold that much carbon. Right. They are emitting carbon dioxide. They are not storing it. They are not sequestering it. Once they get to certainly 20 years old in western Washington, eastern Washington, for example, drier climate, it's got to be a little bit more than that, 20 to 25 years. Once you get to that mark, then it's a net... Um, uh, sequester of carbon; it's actually storing that away, as opposed to just continually re-emitting it. So we need to understand that with forest practices, if we're going to say, "Well, after twenty-five or thirty years, we're going to chop them down," then we're never getting those forests to reach their potential as carbon storage. Now, when was the last time you went for a walk in a national park? Oh, just a few months ago. Yeah. And you saw it—the gigantic trees, all of the the moss and the like hanging off from them here in Western oh, yes. Washington. <laughs> you can see the carbon everywhere. That's what you're looking at. You're looking at carbon and at these massive uh, 500, 600, seven year old trees, they are carbon storage powerhouses. Whereas those, if we're counting on Christmas tree farms and like to do this for us, they don't, they do the opposite. So we need to push the model in terms of the forest service. That's one of the pieces where policy would matter here in terms of markets and the timber market. We mm-hmm. need to get it so that we are harvesting trees not every 25 to 35 years, but probably 50 to 75 years at best, and preferably out to 100 years. Does that slow things down? Does that limit the supply of wood? Yeah, it does. But honestly, we're going to have to create some kind of incentive structure to make it so that older trees are better, uh, and that ultimately, we're going to use them for what they need to do, which is storage of carbon. So I think that's something that needs to happen in terms of reforestation.
1: Uh, Okay, well, Mandy, um, before we close, and I know I kept you going for quite a while here, but before we close, I would like to just ask you a couple of quick questions. Mm-hmm. We started by talking about tipping points. Are you, you started by talking about at some point in the, the beginning about tipping points and runaway tipping points. Um, what can we do to assist most in addressing those? What should we watch for about those tipping points as they approach Maybe what are the three, you know, worst ones and what can we do? What can we do?
2: Sure. Well, I think uh, one that we talked about just a moment ago was methane because it's, it's firstest with mostest, right? Uh, it, it is the one that uh, we're emitting a lot of right now that's harder to detect. Uh, It has massively more impacts, even though it's only one to two percent of greenhouse gases that we're emitting. When it's 27 to 90 times more powerful than CO2, uh, it gets to the atmosphere uh, faster and it tends to have a shorter life cycle. But it's one that if we remove that, then we can slow down the rate of warming very quickly. So in terms of tipping points, what we can do in terms of just the straight up piece in terms of atmospheric change and what's happening we need to reduce our, our methane impact. I think that's the first thing we can do. It needs to be concurrent with everything else, but it's been underemphasized, right? Okay. Um, and I think the other tipping points we wanna consider, you get into questions about um, the, the polar regions right now, um, and specifically about uh, ice sheets in Antarctica. Uh, certainly you've reached in past tipping points when things like the, I believe it's pronounced Thwaites Glacier, what some scientists refer to as the doomsday glacier. Uh, There's an ice shelf right now that is breaking up considerably faster than we would like. uh, And it's somewhat retaining the glacier itself and its grounding points are starting to effectively erode as it holds on to land there at that grounding point. Uh, Water underneath it, the temperature is above freezing which certainly melts the underside of that glacier. So we get into tipping points there that are problematic. We need right now to know more because reaching places like the Thwaites Glacier in Antarctica is enormously difficult. It's about as remote as you can get on planet Earth. We've only had uh, a couple of groups of scientists that have been able to go down there and study it. So we need to know more. Uh, and I think, honestly, study and the like is going to be a big piece to, to help us figure that out. And more funding for the National Science Foundation uh, in those areas are going to be the experts looking at this in the field, because we can't address what we don't know. And there's a great deal yet that we don't understand in terms of Uh, glaciology in terms of ocean marine science uh, and the like. We know that coral reefs across the planet are bleaching at an increasing rate because the oceans have saved us from runaway atmospheric climate change. They're a massive intake for carbon. So the acidification of the oceans there is basically because we've dumped a bunch of carbon into them that has been soaked in instead of going straight into the atmosphere. Um, But we're reaching saturation points in areas. We need to study that more. And I think too that when we consider things like when we consider things like forest fires, when we talk about drought in those areas uh, and we consider what may be going on with the jet stream that we don't understand yet, uh, we ultimately need to have clearer study uh, and more research into that uh, to make sure that what we're starting to hear about, uh, one of the theories that's out there is that the heat dome that hit us in the Pacific Northwest last summer was because the jet stream effectively kinked, uh, that it swung well North and it chucked a lot of dry air up from uh, the Southwest United States uh, and heat that effectively got stuck there for a long period of time. The opposite happened uh, with the Texas ice storm of just under a year ago now, uh, mm-hmm. where the jet right. stream dove really far south. And so we need to we need to ultimately continue our study. We need to make sure that we're doing not just the research and development for renewable energy and clean energy transitions and the like, but we also have to continue study in the scientific community with better funding from national governments and institutions to help us see the best way forward. It may well be, uh, if you read uh, Kim Stanley Robinson's book, The Ministry for the Future, which has been popular in circles recently, it may well be that we need to um, incentivize fossil fuel companies to, instead of drill for oil, that they need to go to the, the glacial ice sheets and drill holes in them to reduce, to remove meltwater from underneath them. So those glaciers will basically sit down on the ground instead of being lubricated by meltwater underneath and move faster towards the ocean. If we're going to prevent tipping points like uh, runaway climate change and rising sea levels, uh, glaciers from Greenland to Antarctica and so many in between will play a massive role in that. And we may end up in some uh, desperate scenarios to try to reduce their impact on sea level rise. Um, and, you know, with sea level rise, is probably the slowest moving actor. It's the one that we have the longest lead time to. But it's also so, so massive in terms of its scope that everything you can do now to prevent that Uh, is so worth it down the road. Um, So, and think about what that does too. Uh, And I know we're short for time, so I'll be brief, but nobody wants a scenario where a billion human beings have their homes flooded and ultimately they're migrating because we know with mass migration comes political chaos. Uh, We saw that out of Syria and the Middle East uh, 10 years ago in terms of the Syrian civil war, which climate change was an accelerant for that. Farmers facing drought went to cities, radicalization in terms of some groups that were there, led to civil war, overthrow of the regime, and suddenly that country's dissolving. And where did they go? Uh, They had to find safety. And ultimately that tipped Europe's politics in a way that was pushing it to the right. Viktor Orban probably isn't in power in Hungary uh, with his right-wing government without uh, that mass exodus of human beings. Um, And we need to consider what's happening here in uh, the Western hemisphere with that too. We need to make sure that ultimately we prevent mass migration, mass catastrophe, mass tragedy for people as they're forced to leave their homes as they're inundated by sea level rise or desertification and the like, uh, or wildfires. And we need to provide them the best chance they have to stay and thrive where they are. Um, I wish the world worked differently. I wish when we had refugee chaos that people welcomed them with open arms by the millions, but in a very ugly way, we don't live in that kind of society. It's reprehensible, honestly, but that's the sad truth of it.
1: Well, thank you, Randy. Um, I know that you uh, have shared with us the hope that you have in terms of the way things can change with the markets, uh, the way uh, national governments have the potential to remove the, the barriers, the impediments that marketplace change, and the way in which the common person can be an advocate for those national government changes. Um, So uh, in spite of some of the difficulties that we face, uh, you continue to be a voice of hope. Um, One of the other quotes I heard this, this week was, hope is believing in spite of the evidence, and then watching the evidence change. Um, so I would like to give you a chance to simply make a closing statement in whatever way you wish, uh, to to address your uh, continued voice
2: of hope. I'd love to, and I appreciate the opportunity to do so because certainly much of what we've shared here is a is a mix of hope and 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 despair, right? In terms of what could happen if we aren't vigilant. Um, and I think that hope is, is the best tool that we have because, as I said in my first presentation in the group, that, you know, is it climate hope or climate doom? And I think hope is something that's a much more motivational piece for individuals to take action, which is what we need. We need people by the hundreds of thousands uh, to engage in the political system, not disengage because they find it disgusting, but engage because we absolutely must do so. We have to do that now. We have to engage with our local levels of government. We have to engage with our state levels of government or provincial levels in Canada and elsewhere uh, and with our national governments. And we have to persist in doing that. Um, My own favorite hope quote uh, is by uh, Senator Cory Booker. And he said this one several times, but it's hope is the act of conviction that despair will not have the last word. One of the scientists that I shared a little bit in this last presentation with your group uh, was Katie Cahoe uh, when she talked about The reality that we shouldn't think of hope as this this bright light that shines on us every single day. Uh, Hope is that little pinprick of light that you see through a lot of darkness that's proof that you just need to keep pushing through hard times because there's something good at the other end of that tunnel. We're facing hard times right now, and there will be moments in the next 10 to 15 years where it gets bleaker, not better, no matter what we do. But we have to persist. We have to continue to hope that through our actions, we can do better. And I think that those actions are what give me the greatest hope. Uh, when I see uh, my son Spencer speak to the Seattle School Board uh, and last summer to talk about electrification of school buildings, to replace fossil fuel uh, heating systems that are there, and instead to move to efficient heat pump systems, uh, to get that opportunity to have him make the mark on my ballot just this past week, because he worked towards that. And he's the one that gets to vote on that part of the levy. Uh, ultimately, with his hand on my ballot. That's not fraud, sorry, uh, but it's ultimately one that shows an act of hope and to show that next generation that they too can make a difference. This is their opportunity. Uh, and I think too, when I see my students that take that opportunity to be able to engage the system, when they make calls or contacts to their state legislatures right now in Washington State, when we're facing a whole range of beautiful pieces of legislation that can do tremendous change in some of the hardest decarbonized sector, uh, sectors. When I hear them engaging that system, that gives me great hope. When I see my son, Theo, who's eight years old, join me for canvassing my neighborhood for candidates that will fight in the right direction on this, putting out the flyers and leaflets where people talk to people at their doors, that's a cause for hope. And that's ultimately what we need to grasp onto right now. There's plenty of doom and disaster and the like. We could talk about that all day and make ourselves very heartsick about it. But the part that we need to keep coming back to acknowledging the challenge that exists is that pinprick of light at the end of the tunnel. And to show everyone that we can, ultimately, they need to join us in pushing for that, too, through the darkness and towards that light that's ahead, because that is our best hope to bring the change that we need.
1: Thank you. And the more people who um, can grab that vision and add their their feet, their hands, their voice to advocating uh, with their legislatures and advocating with calls and emails and uh, voting uh, pamphlets the more people who are doing that the greater the hope grows absolutely thank you randy wow you've just done a super job for us today thank you so much um i will Peace. sign off uh let you go if you have any other last word please feel free
2: I think we're good. I've set my bit and uh, I want to thank you again Susan for this opportunity to share with your fantastic community. These are uh, a bunch of doers definitely and to be part of this these Absolutely. last several months been a pleasure.
0: Thanks for listening to Project Zion podcast. Subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcast, Stitcher, or whatever podcast streaming service you use, and while you are there, give us a five-star rating. Project Zion Podcast is sponsored by Latter-day Seeker Ministries of Community of Christ. The views and opinions expressed in this episode are of those speaking and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of Latter-day Seeker Ministries or Community of Christ. The music has been graciously provided by Dave Hines.